in churchdom or different churches that you visited, we're actually going to do a narrative of Scripture. I feel like uh, sometimes we get to Easter and or we get to Christmas and it's sort of like these big highlights and we talk about the birth of Christ and, we, and then Easter we talk about the death of Christ or Resurrection Sunday like we like to refer to it, uh, you know, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, However, we can miss all the signs along the way of what that actually means if we don't have kind of a narrative of Scripture. So we're going to kind of be diving in and doing that shortly, but uh, just as a little bit of a backdrop, uh, some of you noticed again that you got, you got this lovely bumper sticker in your bulletin. I only bought 30 of them because I didn't want to have 60 of them left in my, uh, in my car. So if you have a bumper sticker, that is our free gift to you. Uh, how many of you have ever noticed a wall drug bumper sticker before? Anybody else ever noticed this before? All right, so does, has anybody ever been to wall drug? All right, so we've got a couple people have been to wall drug. So uh, this is going to kind of lay uh, just a visual aid of uh, kind of where uh, we're going uh, today. Um, so wall drug is a place that I encountered uh, probably about 20 years ago on a cross-country trip with Molly. And Molly's from Minneapolis. And so uh, we left Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul area, and we drove. And if you've ever driven through South Dakota, you're not missing anything. Uh, and so we, we just drove and drove and drove and drove. And it was hot and it was summer. And so you got the windows down, you know, because air conditioning's always broke. Uh, and so we're driving, driving, driving. And all of a sudden, we begin to see these signs. Now, when, as you, you're leaving the, the Minneapolis area, billboards here and there say wall drug is coming. And for about 200 miles, the signs just increase and the billboards increase. There are 300 full billboards around the globe uh, stating how far and how many miles away that wall drug is. There's actually some in London that have the mileage all the way to wall drug in Wall, South Dakota. So um, as we're driving, we begin to see these different signs over and over. You know, if you're thirsty, stop at wall drug. If you like root beer, stop at wall drug. If you like Drugs stop. Oh, no, just kidding. It's a pharmacy. It's not. It's not that kind of drugs. Uh, although to really like wall drugs, uh, anyways. Uh, and so, but um, so then you get as you get closer, you start to see this regularly occurring sign, and it shows up in about a 10 or 12 by 36 sign on the side, just a plain white sign, and it says, "Get a soda." All right. So you're like, hmm, I like soda. You know, so then you, about 100 yards ahead of that, there's another little white sign. And so you're really driving down the road kind of like this, very dangerous. Uh, it, it, but there's another sign, and it says, uh, get a root beer. And then another 100 yards, and it said, says, at the next corner. And, uh, and then it says, uh, just as near. And so you're like, all right, let's get to the punchline here. You know, just as near to Highway 16 and 14, and then it says, free ice and water. And then it says, turn here, right? And so then you turn off the highway and you go to wall drug and you're thinking, this thing has been overly promoted. This is going to be awesome. It's, it's not. You turn off, it's like a convenience store that's made to look like an old western town. And it's got a drug store in the middle, hence the name wall drug. So the way this whole thing got started was this gentleman named, uh, named Ted and his wife, Dorothy Houston. He was a, uh, a, pharma a pharmaceutical guy 
uh, that ran a pharmacy. Back in the day, he was called a druggist back in the, uh, the early 1930s. And so uh, he just decided he wanted to live rurally. And so he went to uh, Wall, South Dakota and took over a, a failing drugstore and thought, we're going to make this thing go. And after about a year, uh, the th they were having full days with no customers and they were really going down. And so um, as they began to, uh, you know, just get to know the locals uh, and try to draw people in, it just wasn't working, wasn't working. And he just looked at his wife, Dorothy, and said, you know what, I don't know if this is going to work. Like, I love the town. I love the people. I just don't know if this is going to work. This is a town of about 300 sopping wet. So, um, so they said, all right, let's give it five years. And if this thing takes off, then you know, we'll make a go of it. Otherwise, I don't know. And about four and a half years into uh, their time there, all of a sudden his wife uh, went down to take a nap and she heard so many cars driving by on the highway that she decided, you know what? We have this viable source of people. We got to figure out how to get them in. And that's where she came up with the jingle, which isn't really a jingle because it doesn't rhyme, but she, it was get a soda, get a root beer, turn the corner, just as near Highway 16 and 14, free ice water, Waldrug. So the way that they pitched Waldrug in the 1930s was if you turn in by us, you get a cup of free cold ice water. By the time he got the sixth sign up in the jingle out by the highway, there were so many people his wife had already run out of ice. And now the place is booming up to 700 and some odd people living there. However, they have about 2 million people go to Waldrug every year, and they're, you know, like I said before, 300 different signs throughout the U.S. and in the world, and people are just all excited about Waldrug. So if you ever see, have you been to Waldrug, or something like that on a bumper sticker, now you know the backstory of Waldrug. When you step back from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the culmination, of, which is the culmination of a story, right? Like Jesus rising from the dead, kind of a big deal. The culmination of the gospel story, the gospel narrative. When you step back from that, you can't just dive in here without knowing the backstory. And that's what I want to do today. I want, to, I want everybody to understand the backstory. Because as, uh, just as you're driving to Waldrug and you see these signs and you see root beer and you see soda and you see free ice water, which who nowadays would turn for free ice water, but it happens as you see those signs, it begins to wet your palate and prepare you for what you're about to encounter. Because the heat of the day drives people to need ice water, and when they see that there's good ice water up ahead, they turn in. So we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. I'm going to story this. I'm not going to give a ton of scripture references. It's going to be more of a story. If you want to follow along, we'll start in Genesis, and we'll end about John-ish. And so... Um, but uh, I'm just going to kind of go through and talk about this narrative of Scripture so that we can understand, all right, what are we getting ourselves into if we turn in by Jesus, right? What am I getting myself into if I turn in by Jesus? So the narrative of Scripture begins with, uh, if I were uh, doing a list, I would list A through H. So A through H on the side. If you want to follow along like that, if you're a note taker, uh, go ahead and do that. Feel free to steal bulletins from people around you in pens. Uh, that is allowed in churchdom. Uh, most stolen item in this church is our Saranac Lake Baptist Church pens. Uh, however, it's not stealing. We're giving them away. So... Um, <laughs> But uh, so creation starts the whole narrative, right? Genesis chapter one starts the narrative and you see this, uh, this six day creation story and then God resting on the seventh day. 
And uh, as, you, as you go through and you see that God's forming the stars and the universe and, uh, you know, he's making uh, the world spin and he uh, separates the water from the land and he creates the animals and then he creates human beings and God stops and he goes ahead and he takes time on man. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. We're the only thing that is made in all of creation that is in God's image. God has put his stamp, his thumbprint on us in creating us. It's sort of like if you've ever seen kids make stuff with Play-Doh or if you play Play-Doh with your kids and really enjoy it. When you form and you fashion stuff, what is left on there? Your fingerprints. When God created us, his fingerprints are all over us as he molded us and shaped us and he made us and shaped us in his image to be, and this is key to the rest of the story, in relationship with God. And so Adam and Eve are created and they're like, whoa, look at us, we're great. And, and everything seemed to be going well in this creation story. And then Adam and Eve, uh, you know, begin to... Uh, walk around and enjoy God's creation. And, and scripture is clear that in the cool of the day that God used to come down and actually walk with Adam and Eve in relationship to them. And God hands Adam and Eve something very unique from the rest of creation. And that's free will. That's free will. Uh, how many times have you ever seen a squirrel not act like a squirrel? Right? How many times have you seen a deer not act like a deer? They just do deery things, and they do squirrely things, right? All of creation does what it was designed to do, but God gave us, every human being, this special gift, this gift of free will. So, so let's finish the narrative. Let's see what we do with free will, all right? So B, Adam and Eve and the fall. So what did we do? We fell. All right, so Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 8. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Again, God was there pursuing them, knowing they had sinned. God walks in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And we've been doing this ever since. All right, so God creates us uh, in his image, filled with his fingerprints, with love and care. And then God gives us this gift of free will. Hey, I want love to be a choice. That's the message of free will, is God gave you free will so that your loving him would not just be a robot response, a pre-programmed response, but that you loving him would be a choice, right? If your husband says, woman, love me, it's really not very romantic. But if your husband woos you into relationship with him, then it's like, yeah, I want to respond to that. Well, I mean, I don't want to respond to your husband's, never mind. So, um, <laughs> 
But, but in the story of creation, you see Adam and Eve, and, and they, they are one, they're walking, there's, they're one with each other, there's no fights in Scripture, until uh, later in chapter 3, the first fight happens between a husband and wife, we've been doing that ever since too, um, but uh, what happens is uh, Adam is given charge over uh, to lead and to protect his wife, Adam drops the ball because she ate the fruit, but Adam was right there, right? So men, you wanted to say, woman, you ate the, what? You ate the fruit. Uh, women look back at your men and say, you're sleeping on the couch. You actually let me. And so um, the entire picture of God's creation becomes marred at this point. This is like a star chapter in all the verses we're going to talk about today. This is where uh, what the creation did, what Adam and Eve did, was they took a, a Da Vinci or, or a Rembrandt and they edited it with crayons, with Crayola crayons. And, and we're just like, we're going to make this thing better. We're going to do it our way. And we've been doing it ever since. And that word to describe that is called brokenness. What entered the picture was brokenness. And we've been trying to get back to a right relationship with God ever since. See, God slaughters an animal and clothes Adam and Eve. This is an important uh, little caveat in the story of Adam and Eve. Um, Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 says, uh, And the Lord God made Adam and Eve and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So what God is teaching Adam and Eve through this is that their sin costs something else its life. Sin always brings death. When's the last time you ran up to somebody uh, and you treated them horribly and you just later came back and just had a great relationship with them? Right? There's death that happens. Right? Uh, uh, when we, uh, as parents, fly off the handle and lose it with our kids... If we want to get back in relationship with them, uh, there's been death in that relationship. If we yell at our kids angrily uh, or treat people poorly, and, and there's death. So there's death in the relationship between Adam and Eve. There's death uh, in the relationship with God. That relationship was severed. Although we want to get back there, we can't figure out how without Christ. And so what God does is he takes an animal and he slaughters the animal himself. And God brought the first death. And what does he do with it? He did what to Adam and Eve with the skins? He clothed them. This is the first picture about sin equaling death. God declared uh, that we would need blood, uh, blood to be shed for forgiveness of sin. That's what's declared in this story, is that something has to die to put a, to put a, um, a covering over us to have a relationship with God. D, God brings Noah on the scene to build an ark for 120 years. Sin grows and festers on the earth. And then uh, God looks at Noah and is like, that guy is actually seeking after me. He wants what I want. I'm going to tell him to build a big boat. And so uh, Genesis chapter 6, God tells Noah to build an ark. And Noah for 120 years is faithful to do two things, to preach and to build. And so Noah preached righteousness. Noah spoke of the things of God to the people around him. And Noah and his sons built an ark, this humongous ark, that would save him and his family because nobody listened to the message. Like, you think your work doesn't mean anything? This dude, 120 years, nobody listened to the message. He ends up with just his family being saved. And Genesis 7, 16 is the culmination of the story. It says that the Lord shut him in. 
So Noah climbs on the ark. We got, you know, all the animals. We got Noah and his family. They're on one ark signaling the first signaling of there's one way to God. There's one way to salvation uh, for Noah and his family. And so uh, they go in the ark. Uh, God does not leave it on uh, Noah to seal the ark. God closes it and seals it himself. God closed it and sealed it himself. There's one way of salvation, one way that leads to salvation for Noah and his family and for all of humankind. Are we getting the narrative? All right, there's one way to God. E, God calls a father to do an unspeakable act. God calls a father to do an unspeakable act. God goes to uh, a gentleman in Genesis chapter 22. And he looks at him and he says, I want you to take your son Abraham, I want you to take your son. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. God comes to Abraham and says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I, should, which I will tell you. Can you imagine? All right. This guy wants to follow God, and God comes to him. He's got one son. Right? God says, you're going to have a son. This son is going to be uh, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, like more numerous than the stars. This is going to be where the line starts of godly people. He comes out Abraham and has this miraculous birth of Isaac. And uh, God comes to Abraham and he says, all right, I want you to take your son. I want you to take some wood. I want you to take some donkeys. I want to take you some friends. And I want you to go build a campfire. And then I want you to slaughter your son. What? If God tells you that, uh, he, he's not going to tell you that. All right, so God is creating this narrative of this father who is going to sacrifice his son. He adds to it, right? Like, we saw that we had sinned. We saw that there was brokenness. We saw that there was death. We saw that we needed death to save us, death of something, right, to cover our sin. We saw in the ark that there was one way. And now we see this story, and it's bizarre. If you're reading through Genesis and you get to chapter 22, you're like, let's just take that one out of there. That's weird. All right? And so God goes to Abraham, and he starts this narrative of there's going to be a father sacrificing his son. And so Abraham creates this pile of wood, and Abraham lays his son on it, and he binds him on it. And then he grabs his knife, and as his knife is raised... This dramatic voice comes and says, do not go through with this. He looks over, and there's a ram caught in the thicket, and he grabs the ram, and the ram is the sacrifice, and they burn the sacrifice. But the, the message of the father being willing to sacrifice his son is there. It's etched in the mind of every Hebrew from then to now. Everybody that studies this story, there's going to be a father-son relationship that is going to bridge this gap. God in heaven who would not stop at anything to demonstrate his love. F, God parts the Red Sea through Moses. Uh, the Lord uh, goes to Moses and he calls him to... Uh, let God's people go from Egypt. He tells Moses, you're going to lead my people Israel out of Egypt. They had been enslaved for 400 years by the Egyptians. There is a slavery that they cannot break, a bond that they cannot break. 
And God goes to Moses and says, you're the dude. You're the dude. Uh, by one man, I'm going to lead this whole people out. And you're going to watch how powerful I am. And God sends ten plagues on the Egyptians to loosen their grip over the Israelites. And God demonstrates his power to all the nations around. Uh, God goes so far as to the night before the uh, Israelites are let go from the grip of Egypt. God says, here's what I want. And God gives this message to Egyptians and Israelites alike. We don't often teach that. It's true. God says very clearly in the narrative... Here's what I want you to do. If you want me to pass over you, if you don't want death to reach your door, because there had been plagues of gnats, there had been plagues of frogs, there had been plagues of uh, water turning into blood, all sorts of nine plagues of nasty. And we get to the 10th plague and God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn son in the nation. I don't care if it's an animal. I don't care if it is a person. Uh, I'm going to kill everyone, uh, the firstborn of every family. Kind of dramatic. And so uh, God comes to the, through the Israelites, gives this message. Anyone that will take a lamb and cover the doorpost with blood, I will pass over, uh, I will pass over that house. That if they have faith enough to spread the, door over, or the blood over their doorpost and to follow me, I will pass over and death will not reach that house. And so every Israelite that night slaughters a small lamb and takes the blood and wipes it over their doorposts. God comes through in a fury in his rage and says, anybody that did not have faith to follow my directions is a goner. And the Israelites are let go. God passed over every home. Death did not reach any home where they followed him by faith. They leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. And the bondage is broken when that happens. The bondage is broken when that happens. They are let go from Egypt. Uh, captivity and deliverance. Captivity in Egypt, deliverance through one man. Anybody picking up on this? Okay, nobody raised their hand. Wow. All right, uh, G. Uh, throughout Judges, the book of Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the Lord shows our need for one deliverer. God always raises up one man. It may have been David. It may have been Gideon. Uh, it may have been Samson. God always throughout the narrative uh, in a wickedly sinful people. This was the most sinful times of Israel. And, and, and God uh, goes through and he always raises up how many deliverers? One. one oh, that would be two. One deliverer. One deliverer all the way through. Judges is characterized by this statement. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You can just skip to the last verse. At the end of Judges, save yourself a lot of time. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I'm glad that doesn't happen now. <laughs> H, uh, the Psalms and the prophets give clear... If you're following along, we're going kind of in order in the Old Testament. The Psalms and the prophets give clear words describing what would happen to bring salvation. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 22. Uh, um, flip to the middle of your Bible, a little bit to the left. Psalm 22. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of the blue or black uh, pew Bibles with you as a gift to you uh, to take home. Um, and so Psalm Chapter 22, verses 
14 through 18. So right in Psalms, verse 14 through 18. Here's what it says. And I want you to think about the narrative we read about Jesus earlier, right? When, when, when I read some scripture earlier, uh, think about this narrative of uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Psalm 22, 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like, like a pot tread, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Uh, anybody, we, we read something like that earlier in the scriptures, didn't we? When, we? when I read the narrative in between the worship songs, when the 600 men, the battalion of men, hurled insults and beat Jesus, I think I read that. Verse 17, I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Keep going uh, to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 2. Isaiah 53. I'm going to go Psalms, Proverbs. Keep going until you get to the book of Isaiah. Pretty big book. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here we go, verse 4. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Skip down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see, if all we do is read the Resurrection Sunday and go eat ham and eat way too much gluten and fall asleep this afternoon, then we've missed the mark. We have completely missed this. Verse 10 said it pleased God to do what? What did it please the Father to do? To crush Jesus. Do you know why it pleased the Father to crush the Son? Because what He gained was you and I. He knew His Son was going to raise from the dead. He knew that death couldn't hold His Son. And so we look at this God who says, you are more important than my Son. None of you are more important than my sons. All right, they probably have a ranking, you know, uh, but no, uh, any one of my five sons, you are not more important than my son. Some of you aren't more important than my bulldog, but um, God looked at us and the scriptures say it pleased him to crush his son because he gained you and he knew the grave would not hold his son. He knew that his son would defeat death and give you and I a brand new life. That's why we need the cup of cold water that is Jesus Christ. Like if we go back through this, 
If we go to, to point A, creation, when Christ rose, he bridged the chasm that separated us from him. He got back to an original relationship. When Christ was crushed and Christ raised again, the chasm is bridged. And we're back in a right relationship with God. And you can't screw that up. That's the great part of the gospel. B, if Christ rose from the grave, he declared that sin would not keep him from us. He ran to us in our sinful state. God was not intimidated by your sin. He ran through it because he saw you on the other side. And he knew that he was the only thing that was going to set you free to have a right relationship with him. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, he declared that the lamb that was slain for our sin debt was paid for, and the offering was himself. That's what it means for Jesus to raise from the dead. It's that picture of the Passover. God will pass over your judgment that you deserve because his son already paid it, right? The penalty that brought us freedom was laid on his son. D, when Jesus rose from the grave, he solidified that he is our only means of salvation. One ark. Are you starting to see these little signs that say root beer and cola? I'm thirsty. Don't we need a little bit of cold Jesus? Yeah. All these signs, they're all pointing back. The ark, it makes sense. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, and women, uh, that from by which men and women can be saved. Jesus is like this heavenly bouncer that is like, I'm the only way. If you want salvation, I am the ark. No other way. No other name. E, when Jesus died and rose to new life, it was a declaration that he was the Isaac and his father was the father Abraham. He was the one. But God didn't stop. God stopped Abraham, and the only reason God needed to stop Abraham was so that God would not look like all the other gods. There was a God that was worshipped in the land that Abraham walked, and that God demanded that uh, every family uh, would slaughter a son and throw him in a volcano. We don't, we don't need to do that. We don't need to slaughter our kids and throw them off to have a right relationship uh, with God. Our God is different. He stopped Abraham, uh, but he did not stop himself from killing his own son so that you could be set free and you could have that covering. F, when Jesus died and rose again, he broke the chains of sin. He broke the chains of sin. Psalm 107.14 says that he burst our bonds apart. Just like they uh, came out of Egypt and God broke their bonds apart of slavery, our bondage to sin is now broken because Christ rose again, proving that he was God and proving that our bonds were now broken by faith in him. Gee, when Jesus rose, proving to be God's son, he affirmed that his words were true. No more doing what is right in our own eyes. Jesus' words are like a plumb line that we can look through and we can see what is straight and what is right and what is true. So when Jesus himself says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, you decide for yourself whether that's a true statement because he's proven to me that it's a true statement. By dying, bearing my sin, uh, taking my fine, uh, that was deserved to me and allowing it to be on himself, 
we are set free. When Jesus says, no one comes to the Father, no one goes to heaven except through me, Jesus didn't stutter. He was telling the truth. H, when Jesus rose, he fulfilled every prophecy in Scripture about him. Uh, Josh McDowell, uh, speaker, says that it's like um, taking a, a puzzle pieces and just throwing them out on a table, and you take them and you begin to piece these together, and you begin to say, whoa, 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 this is all fitting together if Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus was the Savior that we were waiting for, if Jesus was the Messiah that all Israel was waiting for. There were over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the birth, uh, conception, birth, life, and death of Jesus. Over 300 statements that were all spoken 500 years before Jesus even showed up. 300 statements in Scripture in the Old Testament that point to Jesus' uh, conception, his birth, his life, and his death. Over 300. And yet we question, what, you know, is Jesus sufficient to be my Savior? Yes, he is. The apostles read the signs. They led, him to believe it, led them to believe in Jesus. Ten of them paid a martyr's death for that. They were boiled in vats of oil. They were burned at the stake. They were crucified. One of them crucified upside down. If that was a lie, why in the world would they have gone to death over the fact that Jesus died? Why would they do that? Why would you do that for a lie? They knew that Jesus was the Son of God. They knew that Jesus was the one that would save them. Are you seeing the signs 300 road signs all the way through. Ironic, right? I know. I didn't put that together until I just said that right now. But 300 wall drug signs, 300 signs of prophecy in the Old Testament, all these other pictures and snapshots, God did not want you to miss Jesus. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him Will, be, will never be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. At chapter 7 of John says that uh, the living water will rise up to him to eternal life. Like you can have confidence you're going to heaven someday, not because you're cool, but because he died and you believed on him. So clear in scripture. I, I would agree with Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 through 3 he says come everyone who thirsts come to the water that's, that's what it is that's faith in Jesus everybody wants to define well, what does it mean to believe you'll figure that out God will stretch that God will massage your belief God will grow your faith God's not looking for some wild faith where you're willing to do anything right now He's just saying, am I the one? Because if I'm the one, then take the exit ramp and come and get a cup of Jesus. How many times do you see those billboards and you miss it? I mean, it's free, right? I mean, free cup of ice water. Who wouldn't want some? So a band's going to make their way up. and um, You know, they say coming to a relationship with Jesus a saving relationship with Jesus is as easy as ABC. Number one, admit that you have sinned, right? Like the Bible uses this word repent. Uh, we, we all know that we have sinned. 
We can, and if, you're, if you disagree with that, you just lied, so you sinned. Um, we all know that we have sinned, and that sin separates us from God. You know, sin is like bad breath. We can tell it on other people, but it's really hard to look at ourselves in the mirror and, you know, trying to figure it out ourselves. So the first step in coming to Jesus is admitting that we have sinned. The Bible uses the word repent. That just simply means do it. You turn back to God because you are turning away from him with your life. B, believe that Jesus died for you. Believe that he was the one who had written all these signs all the way along so that you would not miss him. Here's what John says at the culmination of his, his book, the second last chapter in his book. He says, uh, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus offers you life. He offers you life. Life here and life later. Have you believed on Jesus? He is the only ark. Or are you just passing by the signs? And see, confess that Jesus is Lord. We, uh, John 1.12 says uh, two things. We believe and we receive. If you want to know what coming to a relationship with God is like, it's that you believe with whatever size belief you have and you receive, like somebody just passed you a football, or a baby, right? So you don't want to fumble. You receive, like I've heard that, I want to believe that, but I've got to personalize that. And it's as simple as just a stuttering, stammering conversation with God. God, I'm ready to start a relationship with you. God, I believe that you died for me. God, I want eternal life. I want a relationship with you. You have pursued me from the beginning of time. Scripture says, that God before the foundations of the world were laid, that every one of your days were written in God's book. For some of you, today is the day where you begin a relationship with God, and God's got a big star and a highlighter on that day. This is the day that you come to know me. Scripture says that when one person turns to faith in Jesus, that all of heaven rejoices. You stand with me. We're going to go into our time of invitation and worship. Uh, we're going to have some prayer counselors up front. If you should feel like you need prayer, uh, you can pray in your spot. You can uh, just listen to the music. You can reflect. Uh, if you need prayer, you come forward, and we'd love to pray with you. Um, but worship with us for one more song, and then we'll call it quits after that. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for uh, the fact that you didn't stop before the sacrifice, but you went all the way to the cross Father, thank you for uh, urging Jesus on to go to the cross. Jesus, thank you for following through to the cross. And then up from the grave, you arose and you gave us new life. God, I pray that today there will be people that would turn to you with that message. God, I pray for uh, our regular church folks, Lord, that you would remind us that there are so many things going on in the peripheral, but you are all that matters. God, I pray that you'd speak. In Jesus' name.